Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, from Duke University to Novant Health, as more and more private companies require COVID vaccination, a look at workers' rights. The bill to control indoctrination in schools moves forward, and Biden sinking approval rating. Is it Afghanistan or more? Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. This week, Duke University announced employees must show proof of COVID vaccination or they will be terminated and not be employable by Duke University again. More and more, we're seeing private entities make COVID vaccination a condition for employment and also participation. In Louisiana, students at the HBCU Xavier University will be unenrolled if they have not gotten the COVID vaccine, part of the school's updated health policy, and many suspect former NFL player Cam Newton was cut from the Patriots due to his vaccination status. How far can this go without imposing on individuals' rights to control their own health care? I'd like to welcome Terrence Dewberry, Vice President of the North Carolina AFL-CIO and President of ATU Local 1328, representing transportation and maintenance workers for Duke University Transit, Go Raleigh Transit, and Wade Transit in Wilmington. Thank you so much for being here, Terrence. Regarding the pandemic, what is the priority of your organizations in representing the interests of workers? And how would you describe the racial demographics of the working population that you represent? Well, as a voice for labor, um, it's our primary job to ensure safe working conditions. That is, to, uh, and having a voice at the table uh, in order to ensure that the concerns of the workforce are heard. Um, with the our demographics, of course, um, the demographics is more or less Latino and African-American, um, a lot of females, and um, we want their safety, the safety of their family um, and themselves during this pandemic. So you're working to make sure that they are protected and safe. The issue of protection with regard to COVID is very personal to you, however. Uh, can you share a little bit of what you experienced in the early stages of the pandemic and how your efforts helped to protect frontline workers? Well, around about March of 2020, um, uh, during the pandemic, uh, we had uh, requested certain uh, PPEs, wearing facial masks, um, rear door boarding the buses, social distancing, a lot of things that would protect the worker and also protect um, the passengers on the bus. And so uh, at first they were resistant, um, but one day, just so happened I was driving the bus and a lady got on my bus and stated that um, to another passenger, please don't sit beside me, I'm under quarantine. And of course this is the early stages of the pandemic and, and it really, uh, I was really scared, I really was. So I stopped the bus um, called into dispatch, and they send the supervisor and police out. Um, long story made short, they removed the person from the bus, which was directed to get on the bus because the person had been at Wait Med the whole night um, getting tested and got on the bus when they were supposed to have been under quarantine. So that's a concern for the passenger of not even having a way to get home during this pandemic, and then exposing two other uh, routes before she got on my bus. 
Right. I was walked. I was instructed to go back to the base. I was walked out of the facility without entering the building. And what the next 15, 20 minutes was really t uh, disturbing to me because I had no instruction. I had no idea of how to come to my house, enter my house without potentially affecting my family. But so, you did that. Mm -hmm. You did that, and that was stressful and traumatic to you. You isolated, as um, I recall you sharing with me earlier, mm -hmm. and from that state of isolation and self-quarantine, you, you negotiated for the rights of the people who you represent. Yes, I, I guess it gave me a first-hand experience at, at the beginning. Um, on, it happened on a Thursday, and long story made short, um, by that Sunday, we had was allowed to wear masks, were allowed rear door boarding, and um, free fares for the public. Free fare for the public. Yes. It, it's just amazing how all of this unfolds and, and impacts larger society. In your view, do, do the workers resent the requirement of the COVID vaccination, or do they feel like it's restricting their freedoms? Do they welcome the protection? Um, I'm happy to state that about 90% of our workforce is vaccinated. And when you're on the front line facing unknown dangers, you want to be as safe as possible. So um, we have some people that may have a medical condition that restricts them from um, taking the vaccine or religious um, situation. So um, we are pro-safety. Um, we feel that um, everyone deserves the right to be safe in the workforce in a working environment. Why isn't a requirement like this, an edict um, like this, an infringement on the workers' rights? Well, um, we're fortunate enough to, to have a labor organization representing the people that will um, have a voice and a say. And we are a proponent of the vaccine. We're a proponent of all the safety issues um, that uh, on at the workforce. So I, I think that... Uh, um, safety is number one. So um, who's complaining? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, 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 ironically, it's the same folks that may um, choose the other direction as far as uh, the, the anti-abortion uh, industry. Uh, and they're, they're saying that they, just, just this morning, I was understanding that Texas has the most restrictive um, abortion law that was just passed by, or upheld by the Supreme Court. So, is 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 the people are saying that that, that um, they don't want to have the vaccine and have the right to not take the vaccine, or some of the people are saying that the woman doesn't have the right to to uh, protect her body, and so. Well, North Carolina and the the whole nation actually are are already suffering worker shortages. So. Do you think that this requirement will impact companies and larger society in terms of that labor force? I think so. I think uh, this pandemic has brought uh, forth some um, glaring problems in the workforce, especially those that are not represented by labor. Um, but companies are going to have to treat people better. They're going to have to come up with creative ways to train and retain people. They're going to have to to um, also recruit and and offer a safe working environment. Um, it should affect the workers. It's going to change the whole uh, dynamics of the workforce as far as what the employees demand and what 
the uh, employer can offer. Well, this pandemic has certainly created changes. Terrence Dewberry, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Efforts to pass a law that would control how race is taught in schools is off to Governor Cooper's office for signature. Although he is expected to veto the legislation, the bill has certainly been a source of contention among lawmakers and also Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, who assembled a task force that released a report compiled from hundreds of complaints about the handling of race, gender, and identity in schools. Let's get our panel's views on this. I want to welcome Brett Chambers, communications instructor at North Carolina Central University. Lamisha Whittington of Advanced Carolina, and Dr. Sean Colbert-Lewis, Associate Professor of History and Social Studies Education and Director of the History Department Teacher Education Program at NCCU. Now, some have said that this effort, which is similar to several across the country, is about the great fear about the teaching of critical race theory in schools. Some have dismissed the lieutenant governor's report, which is called the Facts Report, as a compilation of complaints. However, the complaints highlighted are telling. One that jumped out at me was this one. It said, my daughters quickly learned to just write papers, assignments, from the teacher's point of view to get an A, and that's exactly what they got. They wrote countless papers supporting the BLM movement, although they did not support it, as they are not racist, nor were raised to be. But with so much focus on racism, they just played the game. Dr. Colbert-Lewis, what is happening in our schools and around some of these fears? I believe some of these fears are a direct result of a lot of the media coverage that has, you know, when it comes to either the late Mr. George Floyd in Minnesota or what happened to Ms. Breonna Taylor in Kentucky. You know, a lot of these stories and a lot of feelings of anguish, uncertainty, maybe some feelings of guilt has caused this kind of response. I think in psychology they call this sort of like cognitive dissonance where deep down a person feels really upset about a situation and sometimes a natural defense that each of us as human beings may have is to build a wall and within that wall we may develop some counter opinions um, to help distract from the realities of the systemic inequalities that have happened. When I say inequalities, I mean just that, whether it comes from the inequalities that women still face in academia or in the workforce, or inequalities individuals face based on their sexual orientation, inequalities individuals face based on their um, religion, gender, ethnicity, um, socioeconomic status, mm -hmm. the list goes on and on. And I think there needs to be a retraining, a rediscussion in a lot of our K-12 circles and also our education circles about what some of these words mean. Well, I, that, well uh, apparently and obviously so, when I hear and I, I read about fears like this, Brett, let me get your thoughts on this. You know, we, you know, certainly to... Um, to Dr. Colbert-Lewis's point, you know, people are maybe having cognitive dissonance, but this is not something new. People are having disinformation and misinformation. 
because people also do this thing called confirmation bias. So that's being used against different sectors because they have different information. So if you get different information, you base your um, your reaction on what you what the information that you consume, and then you feel as as my students would say a certain kind of way about it, and then we have a discussion. Our discussion may turn to an argument quickly because we're not basing it on any common facts. So that's where part of it is, and the powers that be are making sure that we keep that so that they don't have to deal with it. It's the powers that be that I think is concerning. It's the powers that be that I think are concerning, you know, even even though this bill may die on the governor's desk, it's reflective of something that's happening, I think, uh, in larger society. L.A., let me get your thoughts on that. Sure. Um, I completely agree with that. When we combine what um, Dr. Lewis and Brett have said around cognitive dissonance and these elements, we also see where our some of our political governing bodies are manipulating those fears and charging it in a way that can set up for midterm elections and their party winning. So far, 25 states have considered legislation or other steps to limit how race and racism can be taught. We hear critical race theory as a notion, as this this curriculum that was grounded in the 70s and 80s. That curriculum is taught at grad school or law school. It's not taught in K through 12. So when we hear it, it's become a buzzword. We saw that in the previous administration where, to Brett's point, disinformation, as soon as a topic becomes hot and is shrouded in this this political partisanship of, of just like extreme partisanship, extreme hate, we don't need to know what it means anymore as a nation. Instead, it's just thrown out as a buzzword that doesn't actually apply. Critical race theory is not taught in K through 12. It doesn't apply here. What applies is you have these states, these legislatures, including our own, that have introduced bills that are distracting and deflecting from the real issues. And the real issues is the economic deficit that's been exacerbated in pandemic. And when we see this report, this facts report by our Lieutenant Governor here in North Carolina, it was elevated an overwhelming response of indoctrination. Well, that overwhelming response was 500 students and teachers. Okay, we have one 1.5 million students across nearly 3,000 schools in North Carolina to inflate 500 statistically out of 1.5 million students who have families that represent the broad swath, right, of a purple state. That's what we are in North Carolina. It may be changing, but we're purple state. It's purple state. gaslighting, but it's also fear-mongering so that we don't have to know the facts. Our community members who are going to these school board uh, meetings don't come with facts. They come with buzzwords disinformation, fear that's going to amplify a party's position to get success in their seats next year. That's all it is. Now, you mentioned buzzwords, and I want to get your thoughts on this, Sean, because I think that in the wake of, like you said, you know, George Floyd and people wanting to be socially conscious, um, including teachers, there may be um, some learning, some teaching to be done, some training to be done on the part of teachers who are in the classrooms, and these classrooms are primarily manned by white female teachers, and, you know, they're trying to, I guess, I don't want to use the word, but I will, be woke. (laughs) But they're using strategies out there, and this is not exclusive to white female teachers, but using strategies out there that are counterproductive to the well-being and the uh, intelligence and education of kids. Talk about some of the training that's really necessary. What's happening with uh, preparing these teachers uh, to teach very difficult content in terms of our history? Thank you for that question. Um, 
as a multicultural educator and diversity trainer, and I believe my esteemed panelists have also done this training as well for others as well, you have to make clear from the get-go when you teach controversial subjects, it must be made clear on the part of the teacher that when you hear some of the more disturbing aspects of some kind of history, whether it's American history, world history, women's history, or the history of a particular area, is not to make any student feel, quote unquote, guilty. Now, there is some truth that teachers want students to have a sense of empathy when it comes to different areas of oppression that we will teach in the classroom. For instance, uh, the Holocaust. There's no question the Holocaust happened. And when we teach about the Holocaust, one would hope that students would get a sense that anti-Semitism is a moral wrong, and when it goes unchecked throughout society or when a government endorses such behavior, it can lead to the kind of horrific sights that we teach about in the Holocaust. But the key is you can teach to bring empathy, but you never teach to bring about any sense of guilt. Um, for instance, I've read or some of the governor's report, mm -hmm. and there's a concern that I heard him say that I think does have some validity. If there's any truth to what that Coca-Cola company did for a workshop in telling people be less white or, you know, to me that's a problem. No person should ever feel less of who they are, regardless of their ethnic background. I, I believe teachers have the moral responsibility to encourage students to be proud of who they are. And I think that that's important, too. It just seems as though, <clears throat> right now, and I'll get your thoughts on this, Brett, that, you know, we're talking about people not feeling shame in the classroom. And I agree. No one should be made to feel, uh, rather, guilt. But for so long, <clears throat> where was the concern also about the, sh the shame, the possible shame that students of color feel in the teaching of, you know, some of this history and so forth? The, L.A. said it so eloquently. <laughs> this is a strategy. This is this really is not so much about critical race theory, which most of them don't even understand. Most of people are fighting against it. They haven't. Most of them do not understand what it is. Um, a lot of people in the classrooms don't understand what it is. It is not. This is not something that is being forced on K-12 teachers. Most of the students in college don't take it unless they choose to take it. This is, I mean, we had part of this discussion when we were talking about Nicole Hannah-Jones. It was not about her. It's about a movement. It's about a strategy. It's about the, 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 the shiny object in the room to distract folks, to get them riled up in the fear-mongering. And that's what, that's what this is all about. If this was really a conversation about critical race theory, this would have a whole different, uh, it would be a whole different conversation. So... You know, I'm, I, 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 get, I, I, I get kind of frustrated because in my classroom, we have discussions and our discussions get really passionate. And most of my class are African-American students. So sometimes they disagree with each other about whatever we're talking about. And it's encouraged. But we, we as I always tell them, within these gray, these four gray cinder block walls, uh, uh, which is my classroom, you're allowed to say and support whatever you want respectfully. Absolutely. And that is the purpose of education right. and an open forum. Right. So the conversation right. continues. That's it. 
This week, President Biden concluded the U.S. departure from Afghanistan with an address to the nation. Last night in Kabul, the United States ended 20 years of war in Afghanistan. Remember why we went to Afghanistan in the first place? Because we were attacked by Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda on September 11th, 2001. And they were based in Afghanistan. We delivered justice to bin Laden on May 2nd, 2011, over a decade ago. Al-Qaeda was decimated. This announcement, however, continues to compete with the heart-wrenching images of planes departing Afghanistan, reports of violence and return to Taliban rule, and the memory of the 13 young American servicemen and women who lost their lives during the evacuation mission. And now Biden's approval ratings have reached an all-time low. So, L.A., with that low rating, is this about Afghanistan and certainly not to dismiss you know, public sentiment, or are there other things contributing? There are other factors contributing. Uh, Afghanistan absolutely is uh, not just a plight, um, but just really harmful and, and hurtful for the many service members and the families that are dealing with the aftermath of what war really means. And that means over 20 years, not just this year, right? Um, but in addition to that, right, the low approval rating of Biden is also the associated economic fallout, the economic deficit, the loss of jobs, the loss of wages, the loss of health insurance, especially the impact on rural communities that were already in deficit pre-pandemic. Well, well, that's a part of that low approval rating. The other is the mishandling continually of how we're doing the Delta variant, right? The, the how we're handling the lack of shutdowns, the lack of how we're resourcing communities. What does it really mean with the American Rescue Plan? That money is still yet to be seen. But those are the three main factors for the low approval rating. But to back it up a bit more, Biden was actually elected under a historic low approval rating because of uh, two things, negative partisanship, which just means that there's a stronger hate amongst party lines. The polls that were taken 40 years ago, Democrats felt kind of neutral about Republicans. Republicans felt neutral about Democrats. That's changed. That changed with the, the administration of the Obama era that unveiled a lot of racism and still racial tension under the underbelly of our nation. And then it was exacerbated under the Trump era administration because, of course, the vitriol, the, the terminology we hate, the state section violence that was ongoing. That has changed how Americans feel about politics about the hopefulness and presidency. And even though we turned out to rock the vote, we were so apathetic because we are cautious due to the fact that our people are still being murdered, due to the fact that economic deficit is still at an all-time high and houselessness is even higher, right? And so those are the factors that are contributing to a low approval rate even before Biden stepped into the office. The last thing is generally, you know, presidents who come in, new presidents, they come around a 60% approval rating, right? 60% or higher. Biden came in at only 53%. Wow. <laughs> That's very telling, process. you know, and um, Dr. Colbert Lewis, I want to ask you, you know, have expectations been where they ought to be um, in terms of Biden's uh, delivery on campaign promises and on everything that was expected of him? He has been successful in some areas. Um, I think when it comes to addressing the devastation of the coronavirus. He's gotten high marks, given doctors a chance to use their science and knowledge to help the common good. 
versus political decisions determining how this virus should be fought, which was a big criticism of the previous um, presidential administration. Uh, he has been successful in that regard. I think right now the sting of Afghanistan, as L.A. said brilliantly, um, definitely is playing on a lot of Americans' feelings, understandably. Absolutely. Uh, and yeah. But I think when things settle down, I believe the the polls may go up slightly. When I checked the Washington Post poll not too long ago, um, he was down to, I think, 49.5 percent. Well, so time... T time. I'm sorry to cut you. Time will certainly tell. I want to get Brett in here because I want to know your thoughts on what public opinion will foretell as we enter the midterm elections. Oh, it's going to come. And I think the Afghan situation has to be dealt with. No matter when they left Afghanistan, it was going to be messy. It's a war. And it's a war that um, not many countries have come out of Af Afghanistan in a clean manner. Um, there was, there is some question about the intelligence uh, that they had, that they based their plan on. But as to quote Mike Tyson in this instance, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And we got punched in the face. And it, you know, we didn't recover well. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they handle it. But his steadfastness to let's get out of here um, may have led to some of this downfall. And I and think they overestimated how, how the Afghani trainees, the Afghani army, was going to respond. And I think that was, that was probably their biggest, one of their biggest intelligence failures. But the intelligence community, they don't, don't believe that we're, we're done yet. No. I mean, they, have, they always have There's a more to come. plan A through Z. More um, to come. They're, they're really smart people up there. So they'll... And there's, I'm sure that things are going on that we won't know about, which is probably good, because one of the problems we're seeing is this misinformation and disinformation. I'm going to have and to wrap you up there, Brett. Thank you so much, Brett good. Chambers, Lamisha Whittington, and Dr. Sean Colbert-Lewis. Appreciate your time and your insights on all these topics. I want to thank today's guests, and we invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thanks for watching. Quality public television is made possible through the financial contributions of viewers like you, who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.